0: Hey bonus episode, want to hear what investors, educators, and high-growth companies think about the potential of our industry right now? Well, you're going to hear all about it this week as we recap Cascadia Connect 2022.
1: Welcome to Manufacturing Happy Hour, the podcast where we get real about the latest trends and technologies impacting modern manufacturers. Happy Hour. Each week, we interview industry experts that are at the top of their craft and give you the tools, tactics, and strategies you need to take your career and your
0: business to the next level. And now, your host, Chris Lukey. Welcome to the show, folks. This week, we're going to be speaking to leaders in robotics, automation, and artificial intelligence. This episode is a compilation of interviews that took place at Cascadia Connect 2022 in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Now, I've never been to an event quite like this before. I mentioned some of these personas at the start, but this event brought together growth companies, investors, academics, entrepreneurs, and technologists all into the same room. For a full day. Now, I got to give a lot of credit to the folks at Cascadia Capital for really spearheading this event and putting it on. If you don't know Cascadia Capital, they're basically the top investment bank that's doubled down on robotics, automation, and artificial intelligence. And they were really the masterminds that brought all these different types of people together. So kudos to Cascadia Capital. This event put just as much emphasis on connecting all these players in the manufacturing tech ecosystem, or I should say manufacturing tech ecosystem and beyond, just as much emphasis on that as it did on providing a full day of stellar onstage content. But that's just what Cascadia Connect did, and it was awesome. This took place in Pittsburgh in May 2022 at the beginning of the month, so this is a little more than a month in the rearview mirror, and this is going to be a two-part episode. Part one is really going to be focused on robotics clusters and a little bit of academia towards the end. If you don't know what a robotics cluster is yet, don't sweat it. Three of our guests are going to explain that to you today. Also, as we go through these interviews, since we have such a smorgasbord, I'm going to try to tie it together with a common question that I'm going to be asking everyone in some way, shape, or form. And that's, where do you see robotics, automation, and artificial intelligence going Three years down the line. Now, before we get into it, I want to introduce you to the five guests that are going to appear during part one. There are going to be 10 interviews in total across the two episodes that will air this week. First, Andra Kay is the managing director of Silicon Valley Robotics. She's up first, followed by Fadi Saad, co-founder of Mass Robotics and general partner at Cybernetics Ventures. Next, we'll have Joel Reed, the executive director of the Pittsburgh Robotics Network, followed by Matthew Johnson Roberson, director of the Robotics Institute and professor at Carnegie Mellon University. Finally, we'll talk to Dr. Thomas Evans, robotics chief technology officer at Honeywell. Since this episode is packed with so many people, so many interviews, and so much information, if you want to access any of the information we mentioned in this episode, any links, connect with any of the guests on LinkedIn, you can do that by going to manufacturinghappyhour.com slash connect 2022. Again, manufacturinghappyhour.com slash connect 2022. I wanted to keep it simple, so that way it's easy for you to follow up because I'm sure you're listening to this in the car, while you're working in the kitchen, on a run, whatever it is is probably not the easiest time to write a link down anyway let's jump into our first interview i just mentioned her name a second ago but andra k is going to kick us off she is the managing director at silicon valley robotics we're going to talk about ecosystems but we'll also get some advice for growth companies when courting their investors let's dive in all right andra we are rolling Wonderful. I'm so pleased to talk to you, Chris. Um, It's a pleasure to meet you. I've heard your name around the industry for a while, so it's an honor to have you kicking off our program here. And, you know, you were just leading a talk with various other ecosystem leaders within the robotics space. And I feel the only appropriate question to start, just to set a baseline for those that can't be or be here, are, you know, what is a robotics cluster? Describe that as if we're, you know, having a drink with one another, happy hour style. Great.
2: Well, a robotics cluster is the ecosystem that supports startups and larger companies. It supports them in enhancing their opportunities for success and their opportunities to scale. So... This, regardless of whether a cluster is a not-for-profit or what, uh, you know, what are the details around its formation. This is our mission. Our primary mission is to support our local robotics clusters, and we tend to be our local robotics companies, and so we tend to be regional by mm-hmm. nature. But one of the key strategies that we use to support the economic growth of robotics companies is to create partnerships that they can leverage for success. So we're all about collaboration as well. And because we're all about collaboration, collaborating with the other regional robotics clusters, in my case, I'm Silicon Valley Robotics, and the other two really major robotics clusters are Pittsburgh Robotics Network and Mass Robotics. So it's a no-brainer for us to collaborate because we each have our regions. But as companies grow, they may need the resources of each of our regions. And the companies, we encourage them to move from region to region, to be fluid. We want them to have every resource that they need for their growth. Mm-hmm. And we are we formalize this now as the U.S. Alliance of Robotics Clusters... And one of the reasons that we've formalized this is because we may be regional, but we know a lot about what is happening nationally. Mm-hmm. And we really are representing the face of the emerging robotics industry. And it's important that we advocate for the emerging robotics industry and that we advocate nationally as well as regionally. So we're coming together to do that. And also to support emerging clusters in other regions. Mm -hmm. We know that there are robotics companies forming all over the U.S. And they're not necessarily able to access a rich ecosystem. Mm -hmm. But they can access the ecosystems that are in other regions as well. We all have open-door policies. And since the pandemic, I think we all recognize that virtual connections can be very valuable.
0: And and one question I have is you mentioned the different robotics networks, right? You've got Boston, you've got Silicon Valley, you've got Pittsburgh. And you were talking about each different region having strengths, right? I'd love to hear, as the managing director of Silicon Valley Robotics, what you feel the strengths of Silicon Valley are.
2: Our most obvious strength is that the... The investment community, we have the largest, densest community of investment. What's often overlooked, whereas Pittsburgh's strength comes a lot out of companies coming out of Carnegie Mellon and the groundbreaking work that they do, and Pittsburgh is focusing on autonomous vehicles because there's quite a specialty around that in this area they're also focusing on manufacturing support because again it's a specialty of the area mass robotics has both access to investment but also a really good health and biotech infrastructure so we each have certain strengths and certain things that we all have in common and I would say that in Silicon Valley, you probably need to spend some time in the valley, regardless of where your company is actually located, when you're going through your fundraising times, because we have the largest capital concentration in the world, honestly, the largest capital concentration in the world.
0: Absolutely. And and it's interesting. On Manufacturing Happy Hour, I feel like there was a, a time period not too long ago, really just this past year, where... Felt like every other company I was talking to had some connection to Silicon Valley, and and there was a there was a comment you made on stage. I'm, I'm going to try to quote you correctly. Um, you talked about fashion trends in Silicon Valley, and I want to, as much of a tech podcast as this is, it's also a leadership podcast. I'd love to give leadership advice to, let's say, maybe some of the younger companies out there that are looking for funding. So so you mentioned fashion trends in Silicon Valley, I think kind of like a flavor of the month for investors yes. in terms of what they're into at the time.
2: Oh, yes. You know, there's, there's definitely fashion trends in investment, and one of the things you have to realize is that the majority of successful investors out there have been software investors Mm -hmm. and that's their background that's what they know they're not bringing much to the table when it comes to a hardware company Mm -hmm. let alone a robotics company or even within that companies that are doing sensor technology sensor fusion i would say frankly any deep tech or hardware company is not playing to the majority of investors strengths Mm. and that's the question that I encourage every startup founder to ask. Write down the list of qualities that you would like in your ideal investor. Write down the things that you need assistance with in your startup. Mm -hmm. You know, is it access to management talent? Is it access to market partners? What are the things that you want out of your investors? Because you've got to look at it as a partnership. Mm -hmm. They have to bring more to the table than money. And we saw a flood of capital in that was just money. And it has actually been a burden for those startups that, that took that money because they didn't get any of the extra benefits that they would have needed to grow into si- into successful companies.
0: Yeah, like like any relationship, it's a two-way street, right? Mm-hmm. And you need to make sure you're asking the right questions of your investors as, as they are of you as a, as a young company. So... Excellent advice. It sounds like you wanted to add one other point to that. I would say I've I've tried to explain
2: venture capital to engineers in particular. Mm -hmm. So I think for the Manufacturing Happy Hour podcast, we're talking to engineers and it is really, really hard for them to get it through their heads that venture capitalists fail and that they will invest in companies knowing that there's a good chance that the company is going to fail. Now... I'm not saying that they want that to happen, but they're okay with it. Mm. Whereas for you, it's your company. You want this one to succeed. Venture capital is playing a bets on the table game as long as one of them comes home. Mm. They're okay.
0: So it's a risk tolerance type thing, yeah. right? They they are probably more confident in others than they are in some of their in their portfolio, right? But you've got to make the bets because I'm sure some of is it is it safe to say that some of the things that maybe they're less confident in end up working out in the long run? No, oh, I really? actually do okay. not
2: see that when they make bets that they can't support mm. okay. that they're successful. I really don't think that that's the case. Mm. However, you've got to say. What does success look like yeah. for a venture capitalist? And they borrow money from their LPs. Yeah. Their LPs have opinions mm-hmm. about how that money should be spent. Mm-hmm. You might be a loss leader for them.
0: Oh, you okay. might just
2: be making their annual reports or their quarterly reports look fashionable. Mm. You're the pretty pictures that get their LPs excited. And there'll be another one next year. You're disposable. Yeah. Okay, now that's the worst that you can run into, but believe me, you can run into that. Yeah. So we like to encourage startups to have a picture of what they want from their investors Mm -hmm. and to be asking questions. Yeah. Qualify your investors.
0: I love that. Great, great advice. I appreciate not only the inside look into the ecosystems, but also into the investment community as well. I've got time for one more question here and I'd love to ask you this is this is going to be a theme throughout all our interviews today but you know where do you see robotics going 3 years down the line. Let's use that as the time frame.
2: 3 years down the line we're going to recognize that we're growing larger robotics companies and that they're manufacturing here in the US. Mm. People don't realize this yet but we're about to see a massive wave of onshoring and reshoring but the new companies are not building elsewhere, and it's up to us to support them to continue to build right here.
0: Love that. I'm excited to see what the general consensus is as we get further into these interviews. In the meantime, though, Andre, I just wanted to say thanks so much for jumping on the show. Oh, Thank you for having me, Chris. It's a pleasure. All right, you heard it. Onshoring. I'm excited to hear how these themes shake out as we go through these interviews. I hope you are too. Some good advice to kick off the interview as well. Anyway, make sure to check out roboticsclusters.org and Silicon Valley Robotics at svrobo.com. Of course, you can also find all of these links at the show notes page at manufacturinghappyhour.com slash connect2022. Next up, we have our first Manufacturing Happy Hour alumni of this two-part soiree. Fadie Saad appeared not too long ago on another compilation episode, but no worries if you missed that. Fadie is about to get you introduced or reintroduced to Mass Robotics. He'll tell us what characterizes Boston's robotics cluster, and we're going to learn about a new venture that Fadie is involved with. So let's go chat with him. All right, Fady, you're becoming a a regular here on the show. (laughs) Two conferences in a row where we're hanging out. It's good to have you back. Thank you. Thank you, Chris. It's always good to be back. So, and, And last time, we really talked more about manufacturing. We were at the A3 Business Forum, a big automation focus still an automation focus here but we've gone a bit beyond manufacturing at this sure. event despite the show being called manufacturing happy hour and and you know we, we really should kick off because i assume not everyone is listening to that so describe mass robotics really quickly as if we're having a drink with one another
1: sure um so um i call mass robotics a startup escalator uh, mm-hmm. just to differentiate ourselves from the traditional incubators and accelerators and um We believe that incubators and accelerators, they focus on ideation to prototyping. And the real problem for robotics companies is prototyping to production. Mm -hmm. So we created Mass Robotics model to help companies move from a prototyping to a finished product. And the model is really based on three pillars as we discussed last time. So a yep. shared physical infrastructure we have 40,000 square feet of shared office and lab space mm-hmm. in the heart of Boston. Uh, a strategic network infrastructure. So those are the corporate partners. Uh, so we went out we built formal uh, relationships with 40 corporate partners. Companies like Amazon Robotics, FedEx mm-hmm. Honda, Mitsubishi Electric, Analog Devices, all those amazing companies. Yep. And the last piece is the ecosystem infrastructure yeah. which is uh, we, we share with other uh, Uh, incubators and accelerators in terms of programming and events and networking and uh, matchmaking and and all of that. Uh, Fast forward from 2014 to today, we are leading uh, the uh, New England robotics uh, cluster, 400 robotics companies. Mm -hmm. Uh, We have close to 65 resident startups, uh, 40 corporate partners, and we spun out uh, seven companies. So four got acquired and three are um, continue to grow and uh, scale.
0: Excellent overview, excellent refresher. If anyone hasn't listened to that episode, definitely go back and and check it out. But, you know, I like that you started talking about the ecosystem because that's kind of a big part of the focus today because uh, this morning you were on a panel with Silicon Valley Robotics as well as Pittsburgh Robotics Networks, and and you represent Boston, Massachusetts, right? These are three of the clusters, the ecosystems, the hubs, whatever you want to call it, right? And I'd love to hear from your perspective, what are the strengths of your cluster, in your opinion.
1: Yeah. Uh, First of all, it's it's an honor to be representing such a great uh, cluster that I wouldn't claim that like, I mean, I played a very tiny role in building this cluster, but mm-hmm. the cluster existed many years before I uh, I, I come to Boston. Sure. Uh, so it's a real honor to be representing this amazing cluster and all the uh, leaders there. Uh, but I think, um, I mean, uh, while I was at MIT and studied technology strategy and innovation ecosystems from a complex system theory, really, and, and what it really takes to build an innovation cluster, what are the different stakeholders and how this phenomena happen. And then when you apply that to to Boston, um, it's a very strong ecosystem mm-hmm. because uh, not only you have the top notch uh, research institutions like MIT, Harvard, WPI, Northeastern, mm-hmm. uh, UMass and, and Tufts and all those amazing schools uh, that generate lots of IP technology and talent, But you also have the entrepreneurship um, culture and environment. Uh, It's not stranger to the Boston ecosystems. You have the risk capital, uh, and we will speak about that, uh, Mm -hmm. but it's there. There are, I mean, strong uh, investment community in Boston. Yeah. But I think one key thing that differentiates us in robotics is the fact that we have large-scale successful robotics companies. Mm Mm-hmm. And this is a h this is a huge game changer. Mm-hmm. Companies like iRobot, um yeah. uh Brooks Automation, Kiva, which became Amazon mm-hmm. Robotics, mm-hmm. And, and others. So those companies they graduate yeah. alums, mm-hmm. Those are not only technologists, but they are executives. Yeah. They know how to build a company.
0: hmm
1: You know? Many times we mix between building products and yeah. building companies. Mm, Th- great this is, point. This is a whole skill mm-hmm. of like how you build a company, you know. So those executives, they understand what what does it take to build a company and scale a company. So when yeah. they go out and join startups or start their own companies, um, they basically, I mean, they, they do it in a very effective, very efficient way. One quick example is uh, the founders of uh, Six Rivers. Mm -hmm. Those are Kiva alums. Oh, okay. Okay. Right? Yeah. So that's why when you look at Six River, it took them five years to exit to be acquired by Shopify. Yeah. 450 million, 10x return on the money raised. Yeah. Why? Because they have seen this. scenario before right yeah so i think this is a this is a huge differentiation for us obviously there is also testing sites there is uh, th- there is a lot of components but i in my opinion and from the uh, kind of uh, the work i did at mit and and the kind of looking at innovation clusters i think these kind of successful companies play a very key role in making Boston what it is.
0: Well, that's a great example, right? You got Not only do you have the track record, but I think the, the thing that stuck out for me there was you don't just have people that understand technology and products. Now they're executives, so yeah. they understand how to run, build exit successful yeah, businesses of course, of course. and you have some other big news on the horizon right you've got a new fund we did not talk about that last time so i'd love to go into that next
1: <laughs> yes um so cybernetics ventures uh we uh we publicly announced the uh the fund today uh this is an independent fund uh i uh, founded this with uh mark martin who's um um a former vp at analog devices very experienced uh guy with uh, tons of experience in sensors industrial automation uh, FANUC ABB Rockwell Automation uh, Honeywell all those companies were customers of him mm-hmm. so he's not a stranger to the um, to the uh, whole ecosystem and he brings tons of experience in terms of um, operation scaling uh, he acquired companies while at Analytic Devices he invested in companies so he really complement uh, what I bring to the table in terms of access to the startups and understanding the whole startup kind of cycle and mm-hmm. uh, scaling and all of that so uh um, so together we uh, we launched the fund and we put together a, uh, an amazing uh, board of advisors uh, for the fund. Uh, you, you can check their names. That we're very proud of all of them, believing in uh, what we're trying to build. And and the key problem we're trying to solve is um, the challenge for robotics companies to mm-hmm. raise uh, funding at the early stage. Yeah. So pre-seed, seed, and Series A. Um, this is a very difficult stage to raise funding because you have an idea, maybe you have a, um, a prototype. Yeah. Uh, you don't necessarily have market traction. Sure. Obviously, you don't have any revenues. Yeah. And traditional VCs are not organized to do these kind of bets. Mm-hmm. We have seen lots of money on the growth stage, A yeah. plus, B plus. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the early stage continue to be a mystery for many VCs mm. how they yeah. can make the right bets because yeah. how would you evaluate a robotics company yeah most VCs um, have been gravitated towards either pure software investment on mm-hmm. one end of the spectrum
0: mm-hmm.
1: or biotech yeah at the far end mm-hmm. um, and robotics is somewhere in between sure so it's a whole investment class on yeah. its own and um I mean, I, I have been engaged with many uh, VCs over the last 10 years. I have been um, kind of connecting our startups to VCs and I have been working very closely with startups who want to raise funding. So I have been there and I have mm-hmm. seen how hard is it to uh, to raise funding at this point. And um, it, it just became obvious that it, it's hard to change the existing kind of structure of VCs yeah. and there is a need for a new kind of mm-hmm. a VC that is designed from the get go to make these kind of robotics investment. Yeah. So this is uh so cybernetics ventures is a, is a VC fund from the robotics community mm-hmm. by robotics leaders for robotics innovators. Yeah. So this is kind of like the, the tagline. This is what we are proud of. And, uh, it was amazing just that the, the, the reaction and the feedback from the VC community, the startup community. Uh, everyone was kind of telling us, oh, I mean, it took you too long to kind of come up with this fund. This is something that we definitely need uh, in the industry now. So uh, I'm very excited to have it um, kind of finally. Uh, out and uh, we 're very excited about the uh, investment that we have done and the investment that we will do.
0: well, I like the way you describe that hey you 're focused on these areas that traditionally have had more of the investment challenges right the earlier earlier stage companies and I think this ties into our final question here, like obviously, you believe in the direction robotics is going, and I, my my wrap up question for pretty much everyone is hey what do you th- what are your predictions for robotics automation and AI? over the course of the next three or so years?
1: Yeah. it's Obviously, it's a a tough question because, um, I mean, no one knows what will happen, but uh, if we think of what has been happening Mm -hmm. and uh, the mega trend that has been happening in terms of um, uh, the need to reshore manufacturing to the U.S. and the need to uh, um, kind of compete uh, internationally and globally, You cannot do this unless you adopt automation and robotics. So, obviously, there will be continue to be a need for uh, using these technologies to uh, reshore manufacturing. Uh, Logistics, uh, warehousing, uh, we have seen the kind of supply chain crisis and. um, I mean, Amazon really changed the whole game around mm-hmm. uh, order fulfillment and uh, supply chains and the reverse supply chains, so I think this is this is not going anywhere; it will continue to grow. Uh, But construction is another area that uh, we we believe that uh, there will be a lot of market adoption and and market pull, Mm -hmm. uh, mainly because of the increased demand for um, kind of structures and also the declining labor force. Yeah. So um, uh, this is a a paradox that you cannot really solve unless you use uh, robotics. So we invested in Airworks. And we invest in uh rugged robotics, uh both of them are in the construction space. Um, the fourth um, kind of dynamics happening is healthcare mm-hmm. so uh uh I have been kind of leading and 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 um kind of working on a healthcare robotics initiative at uh, at mass robotics. And because of this belief that uh, we will need more and more robotics into the space, there is a disconnect between the healthcare community and the robotics community. Mm-hmm. And we have been working on that. We will have an event uh, next week at the uh, Healthcare Robotics Engineering Forum. Uh, we will celebrate the conclusion of the, uh, the Catalyst program that we started last year. So um, those are the kind of four key verticals that we think that we will see a lot of activities, a lot of market pull. I'll I'll stop here, but uh, these are some of the uh, the ideas that we have.
0: Hey, you've given us a lot. I'm excited to see how these play out, how everyone's predictions play out, and uh, hopefully we'll have some conclusions at uh, the end of this episode. And Fady, thanks so much for jumping back on the show.
1: Thank you, Chris, for having me.
0: Cheers. Okay, so there's your introduction to the brand new Cybernetics Ventures, and how about that line? From the robotics community, by robotics leaders, for robotics innovators. Hey, congrats to Fady and the new Cybernetics team, and I for one am certainly looking forward to seeing how they help change the game for early-stage robotics companies who are trying to raise funds. Plus, it sounds like we have at least one developing theme from these interviews. After just two conversations, Fady is now our second guest to mention onshoring. Interesting to hear him bring up construction as well, but let's not get too far ahead of ourselves here in this episode. We'll get more on that topic later. For now, on to the next interview. We're about to wrap up our Robotics Clusters portion of this episode, and who better to do that than the Executive Director from our Host Robotics Cluster of Cascadia Connect 2022. It's time for a conversation with Joel Reed. Joel, I'm excited to have you on. I mean, you're you're kind of the, the host ecosystem. Here, all things considered, we're here on your home turf in Pittsburgh. Mm -hmm. You're with the Pittsburgh Robotics Network. So I have to – maybe we do a little history lesson first. Why was Pittsburgh so poised to become such a robotics and, let's say, a technology hub of – the greater midwest i don't really I, I never know if pittsburgh's midwest or not
3: well first of all it's the hub of the world okay all let's, right let's yeah, start right. with that you you, you must <laughs> be from here like from here we're we're thinking a lot bigger and broader than yeah. that uh well first let me say it's great to be the host yeah uh, really great to have uh you know industry influencers here and to have our uh, fellow clusters which we announced mm-hmm. today mm-hmm. Uh, a new alliance amongst uh, robotics clusters between uh boston pittsburgh and uh, the bay area mm-hmm. uh so we're thrilled uh um, you know, to have this opportunity, why Pittsburgh? So that, this is why we're doing this. Mm-hmm. Um, I was the CEO of a robotics company here that was trying to raise money, hire talent, find customers, you know, build partnerships. And I would get that question. Um, the interesting thing is those that knew the industry the best, they're like, yeah, Pittsburgh's one of the top, you know, in, in the world, mm-hmm. if not the top two, if not the best. Mm-hmm. Um, but then, But then you would be talking to an investor and they would say, why Pittsburgh? And um, I can go fairly far back, but I will, I will slump, simplify. It really comes down to engineering talent. Mm-hmm. And why did we have um, this community of engineers and, and this depth of skills and experience? A lot of it has to do with the steel industry. And uh, really a lot of that dates all the way back to raw resources, right? We were rich as a Midwestern area in the United States um, to have coal and coal deposits and, and other natural resources. Um, that brought uh, development of, um, you know, it brought the the coal industry, the steel industry, but it also led to the development of technologies like the railroad air brake by Westinghouse, mm-hmm. and Westinghouse became a very large company uh, in the Pittsburgh region, and what they ultimately did is is that they ended up turning to innovation, right? And so they actually envisioned. Uh, a robotic solution back in 1939 at the New York World's Mm -hmm. Fair. And so they've kind of brought this image out into the public. Um, But fast forward, they made investments and were responsible for launching the Robotics Institute at Carnegie Mellon University, Uh, executives within Westinghouse and, and also leaders within CMU. So, you know, the story was always about raw resource leading to innovation, leading to new markets. Well, we now have a new raw resource Um, in this emerging industry which is uh, technical talent Mm -hmm. and robotics talent and a lot of that has been driven by Carnegie Mellon University and so now that has led to innovation and to new ideas and new companies which is now leading to new markets and so we're following that same story.
0: You know, when, when I was talking to Andra, I was asking, hey, what's the, what's the strength of the ecosystem in Silicon Valley, right? You've got the investor community out there. Would you say the engineering talent, that tech talent, is that the strength of Pittsburgh or is there more to that as well?
3: Well, it is the talent. I mean, obviously we have uh, smart people and we have a lot of them mm-hmm. and we're actually leading a lot of um, uh, new developments um, and breakthroughs in basic science uh, yeah. in applications um, but something I've learned just recently is, is that uh, we also have, a, I think, a unique culture. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was just discussed uh, or it was that subject was broached recently um, in one of the recent uh, panel presentations. Um, you know, we like to work on difficult problems and it's more about the work. Uh, someone said to me recently, you know, it's not about sizzle. Um, It's about working on tangible, identifying real problems that affect us all in our societies and coming up with tangible solutions to that. And so it's about the work. Now, that, now, that's one of our strengths, mm-hmm. right? And so we have this amazing culture where people think um, about big problems in big ways. Yep. Red Whitaker, one of the pioneers in the industry and, and a pioneer here in Pittsburgh, um, largely credited with launching the autonomous vehicle industry uh, mm-hmm. you know, through um, his students and the work that they did with Grand DARPA, is now working on space exploration. He's setting up a space portal in Pittsburgh. That's thinking big, putting a space portal.
4: In yeah, Pittsburgh.
3: That is huge. Right. And so there is that mentality that we can really tackle these very large problems. Now, that's our strength. But it also can be one of our weaknesses or, oppor- or an opportunity for uh, or a new opportunity, because, um, you know, we do tend to be very engineering and technology focused. So that is really one thing that the PRN is looking to complement what's happening here in the region is, is to bring uh, commercial talent and to bring new partners mm-hmm. and bring investors to town and create a lot of those strategic industry connections yeah. uh, to a number of these 100 com- you know, robotics companies that we have in our, our ecosystem today.
0: Joel, I've got to ask you about your career as well because before you were, let's say, an ecosystem, a cluster leader, I mean, you were working with these companies, right? You were trying to get funder, you know, funding and things like that. What did you learn from that experience that's helped you in this role now? So I've worked with three robotics companies
3: mm-hmm. uh, all in here in Pittsburgh. It started with Seagrid back yep. in 2006. Big name. Very early, and mm-hmm. they're doing great. Um, great company and a very big name, leader in their market space. And then I worked with a very small company, just two people, PhD mm-hmm. and a master's uh, co-founders, and really helped them build their business plan and, and uh, position them in the marketplace. And that was ultimately acquired by Autodesk. Mm-hmm. And then most recently as CEO of IM Robotics. Um, a company with a uh, cutting-edge uh, solution for uh, manipulation off of a mobile platform, which is extremely difficult uh, to do. I've learned a lot. Um, it's capital-intensive. hmm um you know uh you know you get you get a lot of attention from customers mm-hmm. um you know with uh, exciting solutions and exciting technology, so getting to a pilot or a proof con a concept uh while difficult um you know is is certainly doable at this stage um but getting in uh you know to the sale. Um, establishing the presence within your customers in the market, and then ultimately beginning to that, sell that, scale mm-hmm. that, is extremely different, difficult, and um, it really comes down to: Are you solving the problem that matters to the customer? Yeah. And what are the what are the basic economics, you know, behind it? So, in terms of building a commercial. Um, uh, Building the commercial side of these businesses, um, I've learned a great deal, Uh, both from successes but probably more from failures.
0: Well, I also have to ask, right, a a word that sticks out in your answer there is capital intensive, right? Mm. And we're at an event that's a mix of academia, investors, high-growth companies, right? And I feel like that can scare investors, right, when they hear capital intensive, especially when we're coming out of a very – SaaS driven world, right? That's been the the flavor for like the past couple decades. It feels like. So, how do you, how do people overcome that with investors, right?
3: Well, it was mentioned during the conference that there's we're at we believe we're reaching an inflection point. Yeah, uh, definitely the case. Um, and uh, an inhibitor five ten years ago, mm-hmm. uh, but now the costs of a lot of the common components are coming down, especially as and this is true. This is a typical market development curve for any new industry. Mm-hmm. Right, uh, where you have a lot of uh, specialized materials and components at a higher cost, much lower volumes that are going into in the marketplace. Yeah. Now we're starting to see companies are succeeding. So components like uh, you know sensors, uh, uh, CPUs and GPUs, um, and other devices are coming down. So you know the bombs of a lot of these solutions are coming down. You're also having companies that are understanding that there needs to be a mix of a nice hardware solution, mm-hmm. uh, but also business models uh, wrapped around changing. Uh, the business processes or Mm -hmm. having a positive impact on the business process. So it's not always about about the best robot. It's do you understand uh, how the customer does business and how are you going to make that better? Um, and really uh, address their top priorities. And then a lot of companies, you know, are, are deriving value from the data that's being collected from these machines, mm-hmm. uh, you know, in the space. So actually most robotics companies are predominantly software-driven. Mm. Um, you know, and if you look at the development teams, they weigh more towards um, software development than they do hardware. It's still, very much, a, still very much a physical game. So when I, when I talk to my colleagues out there, you know, we're all discussing the fact not to become as enamored with, you know, um, you know, the physical object that yeah. we, that we're doing. So, you know, sometimes, um, you know, taking the simple approach is the best approach to going into the marketplace. Um, but there are still those, um, uh, you know, transformational uh, areas uh, like autonomous vehicles that that really do require uh, doing some of that hard work of solving some of these hard technical problems. I mean, if we're really going to change our lives in terms of lives and property and damage, um, you know, avoided um, reduction of uh, the impact of the climate change, you know, making us more efficient in our lives, you know, giving us a better balance in our lives, um, you know, we really need to achieve those high levels of autonomy. The trick will be, you know, what are are the business models incrementally uh, on the way there?
0: Yeah. Well, I think events like this are also going to help getting the right people together, getting everyone having those conversations. I think when we were chatting last night, you mentioned you're doing like this on a monthly basis, if not more like uh, having yeah. these type of rendezvous. Yeah,
3: we, we do. Um, we do a mix of, uh, you know, because of the pandemic, we got into doing webinars and we found that webinars were really a way to get our message out to a broader audience. Yeah. And so that really is an outreach um, strategy for us. Yeah. We've met so many people either sitting on our panels, moderating them or even participating and and that content as you know uh can be saved and repurposed and mm-hmm. and downloaded at any time we're very happy to be back in person yeah uh it's really important to have our member companies out talking to these business leaders and these industry leaders who have amazing networks mm-hmm. and that was one of my experiences during uh COVID is as i was talking to folks like J.P. Morgan and Dentons, they have very extensive industry networks that are um, extremely interested in what's happening in this space mm-hmm. um, because it truly is, um, you know, the next new economy uh, for a lot of us. And, and you know, robotics or, or autonomous technology is really going to impact nearly every major uh, industry that's out there. Now, it won't be a robot, mm-hmm. but it's going to be a machine that makes a process or a business, you know, or a task, you know, better or, or, or easier. Um but uh, um, so th- there's a huge opportunity.
0: Yeah. Well, kudos to Cascadia Capital for bringing this crew together. Last question for you is what's your prediction for robotics, automation, and AI in the next three years, whether it's Pittsburgh specific or global?
3: Yeah, I think what it's going to be is, is it's about just growth. Mm-hmm. Um, we really saw coming out of the pandemic, b- before the pandemic, a lot of our companies were doing proof of concepts and pilots with customers. Yeah. So in some way, industries have been experimenting with this technology. And then the pandemic happened, yeah. right? And then and a, and a labor problem became even more pronounced. Mm-hmm. Um, and so almost overnight, you saw amazing growth from 30% to 100% growth mm-hmm. in certain industry segments for the use of this technology. They had already become familiar with With it, yeah, right, and so we're going to see that continue growth because the labor problem is not getting um, any better, right? uh, In a lot of industries. So what I see in the next three years is um, execution. Mm -hmm. Um, I also think that there needs to be that next level of sophistication on bringing solutions to marketplace and not Mm -hmm. just uh, technologies. Yeah. Right. And that's what that's my hope for the the Pittsburgh region and for our colleagues in other areas. Um, And that's why I think conferences like this are really important is is to have an exchange of ideas um, and, you know, an exchange of um, of insights of, of where are the use cases, what are the applications and how do we build this industry? Uh, you know together, so it can 't be academics in an ivory tower it can 't be yeah. technologists you know sitting in their garage you know building it really has to be the entire ecosystem
0: working together absolutely well, hey, I appreciate you hosting us in your town. I appreciate you jumping on the show. Thank
3: you for having him we 're going to have you back next year. Um, they know I know we 're not going live, but at the end of the conference <laughs> we 're going to announce at the PRN is actually going to take over and lead this conference next year. Love it. And we're going to have Cascadia as a title sponsor. So we really mm-hmm. hope to make this a longstanding industry event.
0: Well, this will be airing after this event has wrapped up. Well, there so you go. people will have the news in hand at that point. Very Excellent. good. Excellent. Great way to end this segment. Thank Thanks you. for jumping on, Joel. Thank you for having me. Appreciate Cheers. it. That was a cool little Pittsburgh history lesson there. Also, now you know that this is not just a flash-in-the-pan event. As Joel said, the Pittsburgh Robotics Network will be leading up the show next year with Cascadia Capital as a premier sponsor, so it'll be fun to see how the industry continues to evolve between now and then. I should mention again that if you want to connect with Joel or any of the guests or robotics clusters that we discussed, you can do that by going to the show notes at manufacturinghappyhour.com slash connect2022. We're going to continue with our Pittsburgh theme here. Up next is Dr. Matthew Johnson Roberson, director of the Robotics Institute and professor at Carnegie Mellon University. I actually met Matt at the pre-event happy hour the night before at a cool little spot called King Fly Spirits in Pittsburgh's Strip District. I highly recommend you check that place out. This is Manufacturing Happy Hour, after all. Got to provide those drink recommendations. So, given that introduction, let's dive into our conversation with Matt. You know, it's manufacturing happy hour. we got to get down to the basics to start. So, you know, your profile says your research is to develop robotic systems capable of operating in a complex dynamic environment or complex dynamic environments. How do you describe that to someone as if you're having a drink with them at like King Fly Spirits, for sure. example, here in sure. Pittsburgh? <laughs>
5: <laughs> I, the simplest way of describing it, and, and it's sort of what I learned here at, at CMU, is uh, field robotics. So mm-hmm. it means that you build robot systems that go out in the world and do tasks. And so uh, lots of parts of the world are unstructured and chaotic and dynamic. And so what that means is that's everything from uh, farms, city streets, uh, urban environments, uh, off-road environments, Mm -hmm. um, and really the kind of the purpose of field robotics is to build robotic systems that interact with the real world as it is yeah. as opposed to trying to make the world bend to your robotic system mm-hmm. um, and and so for me that's great because it, it really has the spirit of adventure in it like yeah. why I liked field robotics is when I did my PhD I got to go out on the oceans and deploy robots on the Great Barrier Reef um, when I was at CMU I got to go to the desert and deploy robots that went from LA to Vegas Yeah, um, and so it really, really is this opportunity to um, I feel like an explorer, feel like somebody that's uh, finding new things with robots. That's so. an
0: awesome way to describe it. Where is... You mentioned two pretty exotic locations, the desert and the Great Barrier Reef. Where is the most exotic spot you've released a robot?
5: Oh, that's a great question. Um, I would say uh, we had one of our robots do a submerged city okay. off southern Greece, the Peloponnese. So I don't know if it's exotic, but it definitely was one of the cooler deployments. Uh, the city submerged uh, due to kind of tectonic plate shifting sure. a couple thousand years ago, and, you know, is completely underwater, and we mapped it with robots. So that's, you know, it's a fun
0: exciting Tuesday for me. Uh, (laughs) But it was was a really good time. That's awesome. Leveraging tech to explore the world in unique ways most people don't. So, well, I want to ask you, because we've been exploring ecosystems here on this podcast and at this event, and and I want to understand, for our listeners out there, what role does academia play in an ecosystem beyond the obvious, right? Obviously, training the next generation of engineers, tech talent, et cetera, but I'd love to hear you go beyond that.
5: Yeah, so, you know, I think training is a big part of what we do, but I think another part that's probably less obvious is is academia can serve as an amazing incubator for nascent fields. So even on the commercial aspects of this, you know, and we kind of talk about this in self-driving as one of these examples of a field that spent 30 years in academia before it really was ready for um, commercial applications. Mm -hmm. And so I think that is a great example that, you know, It often is really hard to try new things um, with the business cycle as fast as it is and the economy goes up and down. But one thing that's constant is that universities have been here for, uh, in many cases, hundreds of years and will still be here. And I think that gives people a safe base to explore. Hmm. And unlike a startup, you can have five, eight, ten years to work on a project. And I think that plays a critical role in, in fostering new technology. And so, you know... You know, one of the things that I think is non-obvious is that, you know, much of particularly R1 big research universities are dedicated to the research enterprise, and we teach students. It's a critical part of what we do, but that research component is really about, you know, building the future, and I think that is – a reason we need to continue to invest in, yeah. in fundamental research. Mm-hmm. And um, it can be easy to forget about that um, with all of the hype and excitement and money to be made. But I think that investment in fundamental research really does... Um, Lay the groundwork for the future.
0: Well, in your career, you go beyond research as well. Because one one thing that jumped out at me is you're also involved in refraction AI. Um, you know, do you think being a co-founder of a company has helped you like in your work and, and ha- like or maybe you should say, how has it helped you in your work? And is this unique for a professor to be involved in that? Or what do you see out there? No, I think it's it's
5: becoming increasingly common. And okay. for me, it's been a- an incredible opportunity. Uh, you know, we do a lot in my work to try to translate robots into the real world and you know one of the things that's become more obvious as time goes on is that you need economic models that allow you to scale um, robotic systems and we're not gonna off one research grant or off uh some money from a foundation you know put a robot in every city in the world we're not gonna put it in everyone's home and so you know the value of the sort of commercial applications of these systems really gives me the opportunity to try to fulfill that vision which is to to really scale robotic systems mm-hmm. i've learned a lot uh it's been very humbling uh to have the opportunity to do something very new yeah uh, something i had very little experience with and so i think that's the other part of this that i really value is that one of the reasons i want to be an academic is that you constantly get to do new things and it keeps you young because there's always new ideas new students um, new things to work on and uh doing a startup is a is a is another um, very visceral way of having that same experience so i uh have learned a lot both about you know how to develop plans that would allow you to make uh robots again ubiquitous, and I think that is i think what we 're going to need for the next um 30 years if robotics is going to really uh, change people's lives.
0: Well, just based on the way you describe what you do, I can tell robotics is keeping you young and adventurous, <laughs> right? And 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 to wrap this segment of the interview, I've kind of been asking everyone this and you know, where do you see robotics going, you know, in the next 3 years? Or so I actually think back to the talk you gave where you were talking, you showed that chart where you showed the decline of metalworking jobs and the rise of healthcare jobs. And I'm interested to maybe hear what you think about that in terms of job creation specific to a region like Pittsburgh or maybe beyond that as well
5: yeah look, you know I think um, lots of people talk about job replacement in with robotics, and it's 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 a big fear, and I would say we have two narratives about it within the field itself. One is that you know robotics are an enabler of higher quality jobs of mm-hmm. more more economic growth, and I think that is certainly true, but I think that that alone is perhaps not really going to address um, what that fear is, people are afraid of change and of their specific job of their way of life being changed. And I think we need to address that head on. I don't think it's, it, it is it uh, is in service of the larger goal to not say, look, things are going to change and to be really upfront about that. Um, but to be honest, that I think if we go into that consciously with with a real intention of Um, Making sure that we are doing that compassionately. We're doing it um, with thought and planning. And so it's not that we're replacing whole industries and people have Mm -hmm. to change jobs or do something they didn't do before without warning, without strategy, without um, a longer term plan. So I I think um, I do believe that we're going to see changes in a number of industries. So I guess to answer your question, I think uh, we are going to see massive changes in everything from uh, manufacturing, construction, construction transportation, healthcare, um you name it. And it's not just from robotics, it's also from AI and computer systems. But I think, you know, um I have the luxury as an academic of, of, of not trying to sell you anything. And so I'm saying, <laughs> let me not tell you everything's going to be rosy. Let me tell you, let's be really careful. Yeah. And let's be really intentional and let's make sure that um, we're bringing everyone along with us. And I think if we do that, there's a future with robots in it that is brighter than today. But I think um, there's also a future that is worse. Yeah. And you can look at other technologies that we've developed and, uh, you know, they can seem <laughs> great. And then, um, you, you know, see the you, dark side of it. Yeah, that. you yeah. can imagine yeah. that. Um, uh with maybe some more planning, we wouldn't have uh, our communication systems and Understood. our X and Y and Z doing all kinds of things that they're doing. So. Yep,
0: yep. Well, no. in that case, we need to end with a call to action then. So what is the right way to communicate that, hey, things are going to change? but Because it sounds like we could be doing a better job of communicating that those changes are coming. So what would be your call to action around that? My call
5: you? to action is that people that work in robotics, the people that I know, the people that are building companies, that are studying, that are academics, students – there's one commonality that they have a true passion for building things and and almost to a person, they want to make the world a better place and they want to use their energy, time, and efforts to make the world a better place and so the call to action is to help Um, collectively make sure that we are all pointing that energy, that, that will, that desire for building new things in in a direction that, that really does benefit humanity. And I think um, with education, with help, with planning, with uh, community, with government, with engagement, with all of those things, um, I think we can do that. And so my call to action is um, have conversations, connect, and, Talk to people outside of robotics or manufacturing or engineering more broadly, and say, "Hey, you know, what are you? What are you worried about? What do you care about? What matters to you?" And figure out how to make what you're doing uh, matter to them. And if you can do that, I think um, it goes a long way towards building a future again that everybody feels that they belong in.
0: I appreciate you sharing some advice, sharing part of your story, and for bringing the energy to Manufacturing Happy Hour. So, Matt, thanks so much for jumping on the show. Thanks so much for having me. Cheers. So, I'm taking a lot of notes as I'm going through producing this episode, re-listening to these interviews. At the end of part two of this podcast double feature, I think I'm going to share some of my key learnings from these conversations, but one that jumped out for me from that last interview was how academia can be an incubator for technologies before they're commercial ready. I mean, that makes sense, right? But personally, I had no idea that self-driving technology was being researched for 30 years before we've just started seeing it go commercial. Maybe I should be less surprised by this, but I'm hoping that you're learning a few things like this along the way, too. Anyway, we've got one more interview to wrap up part one, and let's say we're about to bridge the gap between academia and the commercial side of things again. Thomas Evans has a PhD in mechanical engineering, and he's also the robotics chief technology officer at Honeywell. You know, I was curious to learn what Dr. Evans' role entailed, and quite frankly, I got to learn about a lot of other cool stuff and experiences that he had in his career as well. So, let's jump into today's last interview. Dr. Evans, I I feel like I should see this role more often these days, right? The role of a robotic CTO, but admittedly, maybe it's just because I wasn't paying attention before, but your title was the first one to jump out at me. So, as if you're having a drink with someone, how do you describe what a robotic CTO does?
4: Well, it's it's a busy position to be in. So, my role basically from an umbrella perspective is to work at Honeywell and review and evaluate innovation that we can spur into product development. While also keeping a view on how we differentiate those products in the market so they can be competitive and the business that we can bring in and how we can support our customers with those solutions. So that is keeping an eye on all those aspects of the technology development, uh, the engineering project execution, while also managing the business side to make sure our customers are happy with the products that we're developing and seeing where those trends and growth go with robotics and innovation.
0: And and these are quick hit interviews, so they're a little different from what we normally do on the show, but you have a unique background. You worked with NASA, so I've gotta to get to know you a little bit before we <laughs> do we dive too far into this. So tell us what it was like working for NASA, specifically in robotics.
4: Well, I'll back up even a little bit more than that. I finished my PhD in mechanical engineering from WBU and Uh, After that, I started a position as a mechanical design engineer at a facility called the West Virginia Robotic Technology Center. So I was designing end-of-arm tools, uh, components for uh, robotic systems that would support an in-space infrastructure to capture, repair, and service satellites. Uh, Into my first, second year in that role, I took over as a research director for that facility and was working closely with NASA Goddard Space Flight Center and the other space flight centers that Uh, really pushed human exploration as much as robotic exploration. So I learned a lot in the robotics development aspect of that for real-time operating systems, autonomous uh, control, closed-loop systems for being able to perform those tasks, and then how we would build it in development and test it in a robotics facility. So that was very good for me in the experience side to understand simulation, control, machine vision, AI, and then the operational side, be able to form it into a mission and deploy it.
0: And, and I, I want to go a little further on that. Like, how did that prepare you for? You mentioned a couple things you learned from that, right? A, a good smorgasbord there. But what are some things that specifically you feel helped prepare you for your role at Honeywell then?
4: I think working with a lot of various disciplines. I think the multidisciplinary approach is what we're strong in at Honeywell across all of our businesses, looking at all the areas of technology that we have to combine for a system solution. As a system integrator, as a technology developer, that's what our customers want is that end-to-end solution. So I had experience with that working in the robotics side for NASA and for the academic component where I was a professor there to look at low TRL technology that can then spur up into something for a a NASA robotics mission or now a a Honeywell product in the automation space or aerospace space. Those types of things, I think, have prepared me for working with multiple teams and working on tight timelines uh, to get those products out the door.
0: And and we're here at Cascadia Connect right now, and you were part of a panel earlier talking about the impacts of robotics, AI, all these technologies on, on supply chain right now. So my next question is, how do you see automation impacting the supply chain right now and then moving forward as well?
4: Well, I think it's very critical. I mean, automation is what's in high demand from everyone that we work with on the robotics side and, you know, all the people that we work with in the supply chain logistics area that really wants to understand the demand and growth that we're under right now with the increase in e-commerce work labor shortages and how that's impacting their business and how they morph and how they continue to develop to meet those demands. Mm-hmm. Those are things that we're trying to solve You know, in a cadence with our customers so we can be smart and we can provide the best products. Um, but yeah, I think it's going to continue to evolve and grow. I think we're going to continually get some surprises there and some things that were unexpectedly coming up in addition to what we saw with the pandemic. What's going to happen when e-commerce takes over even more mm-hmm. than what we're seeing right now in the demand capacity? I mean, what's going to happen when more shift to a digital transformation. And we see that that's commonplace more than what traditional manual methods may be at this time. So those are all things that we're keeping an eye on.
0: Aside from the, I just thought of this based on that answer, aside from the pandemic, is there uh, another thing that's surprised you most recently? You talked about surprises, so I'm just curious what, <laughs> what you've seen.
4: No, I think you know, it's, a, it's a different workforce right now. I think that the, the talent that's coming out of academic institutions, and I think that Uh, The worker that is a young graduate student that has the most advanced technology and wants to support a product development like Honeywell may not have that same career growth. So they might not have that interest to stay in one particular employer, which makes it harder for those employers to get ingrained in technology and have it evolve over iterations of what we're developing. So that's something that I think is surprising to a lot of those at this Cascadia conference Mm -hmm. is to look at how do we not only address the workforce that we're seeing in supply chain logistics, but how do we staff and keep our own workforce on the R&D side that helps us evolve and continue with that same pace? You know, it's competitive when startups come in and they can offer lowering salaries because of the big raises and funds that they have compared to the overall career growth that we may have at Honeywell. We have a lot of capability for us to work with various businesses and interact and expand and grow. But it's a different campaign with what we're seeing with uh, students and graduate students and workers that want to push this environment, push the products that we're working on.
0: You know, when when I found out I was going to be interviewing you and that you're the CTO of um, Honeywell Robotics, right, robotics CTO there. Um I my, I started my career in Houston, Texas, so yeah. I always thought of Honeywell as a process control company. That's how I grew up, yeah, yeah. thinking of it. But you guys are in the robotics space, and, yeah. and I'm curious, why are you excited to be with Honeywell in, in this space right now, the type of things you're doing?
4: The list is long, and then when I came up to Honeywell almost two years ago, it was look at all the things that Honeywell is pushing in technology and innovation, across the board from connected enterprise, from building technologies, from aerospace, from material handling to quantum computing. I see all the um, the rudiments of what can be combined into that leading entity to be a global leader in robotics, to understand how to build the models, to understand the edge cases, and address those for the material handling space as much as smart autonomous cities. And we have our hands in all of that. So as a CTO, I'm not only working in what we're doing with material handling right now in robotics and automation, But working with other CTOs across the company of where do we need to be three years from now, five years from now, and even 10 to 20. So we can always keep in the front of that cusp of what we're innovating and how we're planning our path of technology to compete and have that business P&L as much as have the best technology on the market.
0: Well, I've got a, a question that's right in line with that, then, to, to wrap this up and put a bow around it. I'm asking everyone this question in some okay. way, shape, or form. But where do you see robotics automation and AI going in the next three years? You can answer that specifically to you know, your own business, but maybe at a macro
4: level well, as well. I, look, I always think about that. It's almost a daily thought that I have to provide some you know, introspection on where I see the technology going and how I pave the way with my roadmap at Honeywell. Um, But I think things are advancing into a level where we're going to bite off larger and larger portions of that automation, not just in the industrial applied automation space with material handling, but also you see it more and more in society, right? You see it with the autonomous vehicles. You see it with other last mile delivery aspects where society is becoming more comfortable with robotics and autonomy and collaboration, And so that's what is really inspiring to me is Mm -hmm. what's going to be commonplace in three years and then the three years after that is going to be even more advanced. But the the computing, the technology, the algorithms and the intelligence that's behind that are the things that I see that are really pushing the envelope for robotics. So I think the next five to ten years are really going to be pivotal for for that advancement.
0: I like that you took the society spin on that answer on the like our level of right. comfort with yeah. the every the every person's uh, level of comfort around robotics and all those technologies. So I really appreciate taking the time to jump on the show. It Was enjoyable catching your panel earlier, and uh, thanks so much for awesome. jumping on. Dr. Appreciate Dr. it. Cheers. Thank you. All right, that's it for part one, or uh, round one, as we'll call it here. I'll keep the outro brief today as part two is right around the corner. I do want to remind you, though, that if you want to access any of the resources or connect with any of the individuals from either of these episodes, you can do that over at the show notes page at manufacturinghappyhour.com slash connect2022. A big thanks to the folks over at Cascadia Capital and the Pittsburgh Robotics Network for putting on such a great event, and we're looking forward to sharing more insights from other leaders in robotics, automation, and artificial intelligence very soon. You got the ecosystem side, the academic side, a bit of the commercial side here today, but in our next episode, we're going to speak to the investors and the folks that are leading some of these high-growth companies in part two coming out later this week. Or honestly, it might already be out next in your queue, depending on when you're li- listening to this we're releasing these back to back so stay innovative stay thirsty and we'll see you back here later this week cheers
4: thanks for listening to manufacturing happy hour powered by the industrial network